Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of knowing you and your Son, Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, and for being a part of the message that you are giving to this world in preparation for the coming of Jesus. And Father, as we've spent this time together this weekend meditating upon the present truth message for this time, I pray this morning that your Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts and our minds, our minds very clearly as to our calling and purpose in this world at this time in earth's history. And we ask and pray these things in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. We've been talking about present truth or cunningly devised fables. And I will repeat the words of the Apostle Peter. We did not follow cunningly devised fables in the message that we have received. Last night we learned a little bit about the cunningly devised fables. What was the word Ellen White used? Theological lore. There are cunningly devised fables, but they're not in the three angels' messages. And uh, the Lord has called his people in the last days to a special mission and a special message. And uh, it's found in the three angels of Revelation 14. I want to touch on that this morning in review reading again from something we've looked at before in Testimonies for the Church, volume 9, page 19. It says, In a special sense, Seventh-day Adventists have been set in the world as watchmen and light bearers. To them has been entrusted the last warning for a perishing world. On them is shining the wonderful light from the Word of God. They have been given a work of the most solemn import, the proclamation of the first, second, and third angels' messages. There is no other work of so great importance. Let me see if I can make that a little more poignant with this concept. Uh, now, I know Kettering is big in the medical field. How many of you are associated with the medical field? Okay. Let, let's just imagine that you were the one who found the cure for cancer. Now, you look at our society today, and I mean, it's just horrendous. More and more people are getting diagnosed with cancerous this, that, and the other, younger and younger. It's really, the world is growing old like a garment, the Bible says, and we're just falling apart. If the Lord doesn't come soon, there's not going to be anybody left from the health perspective. And, and so let's just say that you were able to cure cancer. I mean, would that be a great thing? It'd be phenomenal. And the joy you'd bring to so many hearts and so many families as their loved ones now have a second lease on life. But ultimately, ultimately, they're still going to die. And then what? But now think of this. You don't have the ability to cure cancer, but you have the ability to offer eternal life to somebody. Where does that weigh in the scheme of things? The Lord Jesus has given you and me the privilege of carrying a message that offers eternal life to people. And if they receive our message, not only will they have the blessings of salvation in this life, but in the life to come. What do you compare that with? There is no other work of so great importance. They are to allow nothing else to absorb their attention. This is what we're told. And we read in Manuscript Releases, Volume 19, the world is to be warned by the proclamation of this message. If we blanket it, if we hide our light under a bushel, if we so circumscribe ourselves that we cannot reach the people, we are answerable to God for our failure to warn the world. And I'll add one other statement in the book, Early Writings. 
it's, uh, it's a fascinating little vision called a firm platform. And that platform is a platform made up of three steps that lead up first, second, third angel's messages lead to a firm platform for the people of God. I saw a company who stood well-guarded and firm, giving no countenance to those who had unsettled the established faith of the body. God looked upon them with approval. I was shown three steps, the first, second, and third angel's messages. Said my accompanying angel, woe to him who shall move a block or stir a pin of these messages. The true understanding of these messages is of vital importance. The destiny of souls hangs upon the manner in which they are received. Solemn message that God has entrusted us with. The three angels' messages, the first message, and these messages, they go together. They're accompanying one another. As the Lord brought these messages to his people, he was, in essence, bringing a new understanding of how he was moving toward the coming of Jesus. If you go to the book of Revelation, you find that the culmination, the, the, the high point, the pinnacle point of Revelation is the same as we find in the prophecies of Daniel. Daniel 2, you had the big image. How many of you studied Daniel 2? You get the big image, right? What's the focal point of Daniel 2? Is it the gold? Is it the silver? The brass? The iron? The feet of iron and clay? Where is it? It's the stone kingdom. It's the one kingdom, unlike all the others, that will last forever. And God, in essence, is saying through that vision, that people tend to put all their marbles in one basket. They tend to, to put all... And, and if you're going to invest yourself in a kingdom, and we often do, so many of us are, are investing ourselves in the kingdoms of this world. The Lord says to uh, us, why don't you put your, invest yourself in the one kingdom that's going to last forever? And so the Lord gives us this view in prophecy repeatedly of this coming kingdom of Christ. Align yourself with his kingdom. Be a part of that. That's where the hope is. That's where eternity lies. And so even in the book of Revelation, as I said, everything really culminates with the second coming and builds around it. The three angels' messages are preparatory to that coming. The first message brought to view the judgment hour. Christ's last mediatorial... Listen, this is the basic of it. What happened in 1844? When you look at the types in the Old Testament that God taught his people from, simply stated, Jesus was entering into the very last thing he could possibly do before he comes again. There's no other work to be done. When he finishes that work, that's it. And the Bible says in Daniel chapter 12, Michael stands up and his work as priest is done. And then he who is holy, let him be holy still. And he who is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he who is filthy, let him be filthy still. So we're, we're living in this time period of all history where we're just prior to the coming of Jesus Christ. The first message brought to view. Christ's last mediatorial work preparatory to his coming to the earth in power and great glory. He's about to come. And what's he doing? He's getting people ready. He's receiving his kingdom. You remember we looked at that last night? He was receiving his kingdom. Now, what's a kingdom without subjects? Oh, great, I got this kingdom. It's, I, I, I rule this empire and it's empty. There's nobody in it. No, a king doesn't want to be king of nobody. A king wants to be a king of somebody. And what's happening now is Jesus is making up the subjects of that kingdom. If time would permit, and we'll look at this a little bit this morning. When you look at the wedding imagery in the Bible, the wedding parables... You know, Paul talks in Ephesians about the husband and the wife. Well, he, he's, he, it looks like he's talking about husband and wife. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, love your husbands, right? Respect your husbands. And then he says, this is a great mystery, but I'm speaking concerning Christ in the church. You remember that? 
And what you'll find is when you have the parable of the wedding garment, when you have the parable of the ten virgins and the wedding banquet, all of these illustrations of wedding are referring to the union, not merely of husband and wife, but of Christ and the church. And Ellen White says so much in the book Christ Object Lessons that by the wedding, the two becoming one, is the, uni is the unity or the uniting of humanity and divinity. That Christ is doing a work of preparing his people, putting his spirit within people, and getting those subjects ready for his kingdom. We looked at a passage in Luke last night. I want to look at it again this morning, Luke 19, as we make our way into angel number 3, Luke chapter 19. One of Jesus' parables pointing to what he would be occupied with after he ascended to heaven, Luke 19, verse 11. The Bible says that as he heard these things, he spoke another parable because he thought, I'm sorry, because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear what? Immediately. Therefore, he said, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So he called ten of his servants, delivered to them ten minas, and said, do business till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we will not have this man what? to reign over us. Right now, Jesus is seeking to see who is willing to have this man reign over them. Is it going to be you? Is it going to be me? Or are we going to be like these others to say, I don't want him to reign over me. I want to be in charge of my own life. This is the question that's to be determined in this hour verse history. So, the judgment hour message brought to view. Jesus is in his last mediatorial work. The coming of the Lord is at hand. And it stirred the hearts and minds of people. The anti-typical day of atonement began in which, in the typical Day of Atonement, the people were to afflict their souls, humble themselves, search their hearts to make sure they were right with God. And so that was the effect of the first message. It stirred people into this day. When we consider the coming of Christ, it stirs our hearts to say, am I ready to meet Him? Am I really living for Him? Have I really chosen to, chosen to serve Him? And as we continue to preach the nearness of Christ's coming, the investigative judgment, the mediatorial work of Christ, and all of these things, we are preaching the first angel's message. As we're calling people to worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the fountains of waters, as we're pointing to the Lord as the Creator, we're preaching the first angel's message and drawing the minds of people back to their accountability, accountability to God as the Creator and their need to be ready for Jesus when He comes. The second angel's message exposed the erroneous teachings of Babylon handed down, as we read last night, the words of Ellen White, by the heathen and the papists. Through that Dark Ages period when, when pagan philosophy, philosophies came into the church and, and uh, the, the, the teachings of the church became tainted and brought non-biblical traditions into the church, those had to be exposed in the second angel's message. Specifically, exposed those errors by proclaiming the truths of Scripture regarding what happens with the nature of man and the state of the dead and eternal torment and all of these other things. The second angel's message brought to the attention of God's people that what was being taught them was not Bible truth. And they were being drawn out. They were being drawn out, called out to take their stand on Bible truth. In early writings 277, since that time, that message was first proclaimed in 1844, the second angel's message as it proclaimed these errors. And ever since, 
that message has been proclaimed. And sometimes I have people say to me, you know, hey, you guys, you Adventists, you got this. In fact, this is not what people say. This is what Adventists say, who are critical of public evangelism. They say, why do we always bait and switch the people? We tell them we're going to give them prophecy, and then we talk about baptism and the state of the dead. And I, Folks, that's prophecy. Because prophecy said that error would come in, and that prophecy foretold that the truth would then come in that proclamation of the second angel's message and overthrow the error. I mean, you can't overthrow the error unless you're preaching the truth. You've got to preach the truth about baptism, what it really means. You're not getting sprinkled. You're not, you know, and it's not just about sprinkling, but the whole heart conversion and true conversion. You've got to treat, preach the truth about the state of man. You've got to preach the truth about what happens to the wicked. That's a part of the prophecy that God foretold would take place. It's the truth, according to Jesus, that makes us free. It answers those longing questions of the soul. And it's so interesting to me, as I have worked with so many multitudes of people, everybody's different. You might conjecture that I'm going to share with somebody, and I think what they need to know the most is the love and forgiveness of Jesus. And that's an important thing. That's an essential thing to know. But you'll be amazed to find out that some people, the one thing that grabs them is when they find out what happens when you die. That was the nagging question that had them. They wondered, they were perplexed, and the truth brings peace to their mind and to their soul. And it opens them up to the rest. For another person, it's health. Of all things, you're like, no, 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 don't share that first. Or, or, or maybe it's the mark of the beast. Now, I'm not recommending you go out and say, hey, let's start a Bible study and let's do number one on the mark of the beast. I'm not recommending that. My point is this. The truth of God is calculated to meet every person where they are. God knows what people need. And this message has, has since it, was, it had begun to be proclaimed, it stirred the people. Now, in early writings, 277 says that the message of the fall of Babylon is commenting on Revelation 18. Because as I mentioned, in Revelation 14, it says Babylon has fallen. But not until Revelation 18 does it say Babylon has fallen, has fallen, come out of her, my people. The message is repeated, 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 and then the call comes to come out of Babylon. And Ellen White writes, The message of the fall of Babylon as given by the second angel is repeated with the additional mention of the corruptions which have been entering the churches since 1844. You think there have been new errors since 1844? What about this whole emerging church nonsense? And incidentally, if you haven't heard the message by Steve Wahlberg on Audioverse... I get no money from this. I'm just telling you, listen to that message. There are new errors. that The, the devil is always repackaging new the, the errors and throwing them out. And so the call out of Babylon, the, 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 the Babylon has fallen message that is given today is going to be pointing out those other errors that have come in. God's people need to continually give a warning message that points out where the error is so people know. And so the second angel. Now we come to the third angel. I want you to go to Revelation 14. Revelation 14. And in Revelation 14, verse 9, the Bible says, Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image, or receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out, what? full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, who worship the beast and his image, or whoever receives the mark of his name. Here is the patience of the saints. 
Here are those who keep the what? The commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Now, there's a couple things that we need to get very clear on here. The third message pronounced the most severe warning that is found in all Scripture. The wrath of God poured out unmingled with mercy. There's only one place in history that has ever taken place, and it was on the cross of Calvary, so that no human being would ever have to experience it. Only on the cross do we see God's wrath poured out his, 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 his sword of, of fury unsheathed against his own son who took the penalty so we wouldn't have to. Yet here the Bible warns, and God warns, why do you give a warning to somebody? You know, when my kid's heading for the road and I say, stop, what am I doing? I'm trying to save them from getting out and getting into danger. And so the warning message comes. God is saying, whoever worships the beast in his image. Don't do this. Now the second call was, was Babylon has fallen. But you know, we can persist in Babylon. We can say, yeah, whatever, but I'm still, I'm happy here. And with each successive message, the warning gets louder. And this is the final one. This is the people who, when the judgment hour call came and they saw that Jesus was coming soon, they chose not to get ready. And then the, the call comes out and says, listen, you're in error, and that error is going to lead you to your destruction. We still don't want to follow. And so we continue on, and the Lord says, listen, if you keep going, going the direction you're going and don't turn around, then you're going to experience the wrath of God, full strength. And so you've got this message, this warning about falling into this final conflict with the mark of the beast. And then the Bible finishes in this passage saying, here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Something I want you to notice, the warning against the mark of the beast is not a means of resisting the mark any more than the warning of listening to a news broadcast of a coming storm is sufficient to protect you from the storm. Just because you listen to the broadcast and you say, oh, a storm's coming, okay. That's not going to get you ready. That's telling you to get ready. And so the warning against the mark of the beast isn't getting us ready. It's telling us to get ready. How do I get ready? And we come to the end, and here's the heart of the message. Here are those who keep the commandments of God in the faith of Jesus. You want to resist this mark of the beast in his image. You need to keep the commandments of God in the faith of Jesus. That's the heart of the message of the third angel. We had quite a turnabout in our church in 1888 at the general conference session and beyond. And some of our young ministers began to proclaim the importance of understanding and realizing and laying hold of the righteousness of Christ. And so people wrote in to Ellen White and said, whoa, 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 what's going on here? What's up with this? I mean, these guys are talking all about the righteousness by faith. Shouldn't we be talking about the three angels' messages? And she says, Review and Herald, April 1, 1890, several have written to me inquiring if the message of justification by faith is the third angel's message, and I have answered, it is the third angel's message in verity. In truth, that's it. That's, I mean, the warning of the mark of the beast isn't going to save you from anything unless it directs you to the faith of Jesus that brings you in harmony with the commandments of God. Listen to this statement also from the 1888 materials, page 217. And if you've ever seen these, these are four volumes of big books. So this is page 217 in that set. The third angel's message is the proclamation of the commandments of God in the faith of Jesus. Simply stated. That's what it is when we're dealing with the third angel's message. 
Then she asks this question, what constitutes the faith of Jesus that belongs to the third angel's message? Because I want to have that faith of Jesus, don't you? What constitutes it? What is it? Jesus becoming our sin bearer, that he might become our sin pardoning savior. He was treated as we deserve to be treated. He came to our world and took our sins that we might take his righteousness. Faith in the ability of Christ to save us amply and fully and entirely is the faith of Jesus. How often do you find yourself lamenting over your unlikeness to Christ, lamenting over your sins, lamenting over your weaknesses, lamenting over how you don't see how you can ever be perfect in Christ? Look up, right? It's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about what I can do. If that's where we started, I would have given up right away. But the Lord says in the first angel's message, in the second angel's message, as we're seeing ourselves in error, as we're seeing the coming of Christ, and we see where our unreadiness, we're directed to look up to Jesus, who is more than able, whoever lives to make intercession, who is more than able to save to the uttermost all to, who come to God through him, right? What is this faith of Jesus? It's the faith in the ability of Christ. Whose ability? Christ. Is he able? To save, us, to save us amply and fully and entirely. Absolutely. Absolutely. And let me just make something clear, and we're going to see that as we go on this morning. And, and we looked at it a little bit last night. Faith and feeling are two different things. I'm going to tell you something you already know. There are days when you feel on top of your spiritual game, and there are days when you feel way down here. And as a Christian, you've got to learn to ignore your feelings. I'm not saying we don't have feelings and God doesn't use them and they're not, feelings aren't inherently evil, but they're not our guide. Because there are some times when we feel way down here and we feel God forsaken when God is the closest to us. One of my favorite statements, and I apologize, I should have the, I should have the page memorized, and I don't, but I have the statement memorized. Ellen White says, frequently, the very best evidence we can have that we are in the right way is that the least advance costs us effort and darkness shrouds our pathway. Wait a minute, the wrong way, right? No, the right way. When we're in the right way, the enemy wants to make us think we're in the wrong way. And so he plays on the only thing he can, our feelings. We've got to have a faith that goes beyond that. And the Bible says we walk by faith and not by sight. It's putting those things as polar opposites. Walking by sight is not going to get us where we need to go. Our senses will deceive us but our faith in Christ won't. We've got to continue to believe that as long as we're crying out to Jesus, he can save us and will save us amply and fully and entirely. Now, I want you to see something unique in Revelation chapter. We're going to look at 13, and I want to look at something with this mark of the beast. A very important part of this third message, Revelation 13, 16 says... He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads. And that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or what? The mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. For it is the number of a man. His number, his number is 666. The man associated with the beast, not the beast. And that's 666, not 666, as sometimes people say. That's a whole other subject. Verse 1 of the next chapter. Then I looked, 
And behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. And some of your translations say having his name in his father's name. So we have two groups here, right? And both of them have marks in the forehead, right? And notice that both of the marks contain names. What's significant in the Bible about a name? Throughout Scripture, name stands for character. When we're talking about praying in Jesus' name, it's not attacking Jesus, you know, uh, Lord, please give me that uh, pearl white Ferrari Testarossa I've been wanting in Jesus' name, amen. It's not attacking Jesus' name on the end of a prayer. It's praying in the name, in the character of Christ. Throughout Scripture, you have them giving names to people and places. Jacob has a reconversion experience when he has that vision of the ladder, right? And he gets up and he calls the name of the place Bethel, the house of God, because surely the Lord is in this place. Abraham, when he goes to offer Isaac and then the ram is caught in the thicket, he refers to God as Jehovah Jireh. God will provide. Because the Lord will provide himself. And, and on and on we find Dan, in the tribe of Dan. Dan means judgment. And he'll be a judge. And, and, and you look at the naming of the, of, the, of the children. And it meant something. Isaac, the name Isaac. Does anybody remember what Isaac means? Laughter, right? Because Sarah laughed at the whole prospect of the thing. Names in the Bible have to do with character. And what I want you to understand here is this issue at the end of time, this is the final test for humanity. It's going to be dependent upon character and not upon information. I know a lot of Seventh-day Adventists who have grown up in the church and they say, hey, listen, I know I'm not living the way I want to, but I've got it down, man. I know the deal. When it, we get to the end, there's going to be this Sunday law. And when it comes... I'm simply going to say, no, thank you. I know the right answer. But let me tell you something this morning. The apostle Peter knew the right answer for the test. Jesus said, you're going to deny me three times. Peter said, Lord, they may, they may all forsake you, but I'm going to die for you. You think Peter meant it? I guarantee he meant it. But here's the thing Peter didn't understand. His knowledge of the situation wasn't what was going to determine the outcome. It was his character, and his character, his character was not right. It wasn't ready for the crisis. And if we wait until that time, it's going to be too late to develop the character necessary. Now, the Bible brings this to view in many different, uh, with many different uh, uh, illustrations. When we're talking about character, the, I mentioned the parable of the wedding garment. I want you to turn there with me to the parable of the wedding garment in Matthew chapter 22. Matthew 22 and verse 1. This is a fascinating parable and just one of many that will illustrate this point, the importance of character. You know, you've heard you can't take it with you. Well, there's some things you can. There's actually one thing you can, and that's your character. You can't take anything else. But you're going to take your character wherever you go. Your character is going to determine it. Matthew 22, verse 1, notice what it says. And Jesus answered and spoke to them again by a parable, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. And he sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. 
Again, he sent out other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle are killed and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his own farm, another to his business. But there's a lot of instruction here. What are the things that distract us from having enough time for spiritual things? Well, I'd like to, but I'm too busy. Too many Seventh-day Adventists, for them, their religious experience is an hour or two on Saturday morning. That's not a religious experience, friends. I mean, God's got a church that functions 24-7. It needs people that are invested, not just in the church, in this ethereal church, but in the real local church. And what happens is we just, the devil gets us busy with things, just like he did God's people here. They made light of it. They went their way, one to his own farm, another to his business, verse 6, and the rest seized his servants and treated them spitefully and killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious, and he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. Anybody have an idea what that's talking about? That's been fulfilled, that little prophecy. Who's the, who's the one holding the banquet? Who's the king? Father. It's the Father, God the Father. And he's, he's holding this, this supper. What's he inviting the people to? When he's inviting them to the wedding feast, the banquet, what's he inviting them to? It's salvation. It's the offer of salvation and the invitation to salvation. But the people made light of it. Who were the people that made light of it and went their ways? The whole Jewish nation. And when it says, finally, the king sent out his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city, that's what happened to Jerusalem. And then it says, verse 8, Then he said to his servants, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore go out into the highways, and as many as you find, invite them to the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. And when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. Now, who would the guests be? These, the messages that sent, the invitation is sent out again. This time, who would it be to? The Gentiles, right? And, the, and again, it's the invitation to salvation. What happens now? People are coming in. And so the guests come into the banquet hall, and the king comes in to do what? I'm going to choose to use the word investigate, because that's exactly what's happening here. He's going to investigate to see if those guests really have received the invitation. And what's he looking for? It says the king came to see the guests, verse 11, but when the king came in to see the guests, he saw there a man who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Now, what if I came in here this morning and I said, what? hey, what's up, you guys? Where... I thought we were all going to wear red shirts today. What are you doing? Where's your red shirt? Are you going to say anything? I would, I would imagine somebody said, whoa, whoa, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. You didn't say anything about having a red shirt. I didn't hear this. Where, would, where was I? Did I miss the memo? This man says nothing. He's not saying, well, wedding garment, wait a minute, wedding garment, I don't know what you're talking about. He says nothing. What does that tell us? He knew about it. 
He knew about it. He had no excuse, but he chose not to put it on. Then the king said to him, uh, rather, verse 13, the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are called, but few are chosen. I want you to think about the, the, the ramifications of this for just a moment. Here's a man who's sitting in the banquet hall, okay? In other words, here is a person who in their mind have accepted the invitation to salvation. They've accepted Jesus Christ as their savior. He's sitting in the banquet hall and he's sitting there comfortably, contentedly. In other words, he feels he has a perfect right to be there. He has assurance of his salvation in Christ alone. But with all the assurance he has sitting there, he's lacking something. He didn't put on the wedding garment. What's that wedding, wedding garment? What does that wedding garment represent? But the character of Christ or the robe of Christ's righteousness, or maybe I should put it this way, the, 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 the sanctified life. There's a good chance this guy's a Seventh-day Adventist. And he's sitting there and he's saying, you know, I used to hear in my church that we ought to have a character that was developed and ready to meet Jesus. But lately I've been hearing a lot of teachers say, you know, that's not important. What really matters is that we just believe in Jesus. And as long as we believe in Jesus, don't let people trouble you with that idea of readiness. Don't let them get you all worked up. Just believe in Jesus and that's all you need. And so here I am just believing in Jesus. What about the wedding garment? Well, pff, I got it, but I didn't. I, I mean, I heard the others say it wasn't important to put it on. Did the king think it wasn't important to put it on? I'm telling you this morning that there are going to be a lot of people, including Seventh-day Adventists, who are going to be in for a rude awakening when the king comes looking for the wedding garment. When he looks to see what character we've developed, whether or not, when that final test comes, it doesn't matter how much I know in time events. It doesn't matter what I know about the Sunday law. If I have not developed a Christ-like character, if, not, if I am not wearing the robe of Christ's character, I'm going to default to the wrong answer. Are you with me so far? Early Writings, page 64, says, Then I was pointed to the earth and saw that there would have to be a getting ready among those who have of late embraced the third angel's message. Said the angel, Get ready. Get ready, get ready. Ye will have to die a greater death to the world than ye have ever yet died. I saw that there was a great work to do for them and but little time in which to do it. And similarly on Great Controversy, page 622, it says this, The time of trouble such as never was is soon to open upon us and we shall need an experience which we do not now possess and which many are too indolent to obtain. Indolent. That's an interesting word. Do you know what indolent means? Lazy. lazy is the, the, you know, I, I'd understood it to mean lazy. It's really fascinating. It comes from the French, andelier, which means to not feel pain or desire not to feel pain. In, in other words, indolence is a laziness that comes from, I don't want to have to do anything that's going to be hard. There's an experience that we're told here that God's people need and they don't have it. And the problem is, too many of them are too inclined to an easy religion to gain that experience. You know, when Peter, when Jesus told Peter he was going to suffer and, and, and at the hands of the religious leaders and then he'd be crucified and rise the third day, and Peter said, Lord, 
This will never happen to you. Don't even talk that way. You remember that? And Jesus said, Peter, said, he didn't say Peter. He said, get thee behind me, Satan. For you don't desire the things of God, but the things of man. Ellen White comments on that. She says, Peter did not desire to see the cross in the work of Christ. He was aligned with Christ. He was in Christ's company. So the last thing he wanted to do is think, you know, if Christ is going to face suffering, guess what? He might have to face suffering. There's a work, there's an experience that needs to be gained. Get ready, get ready, get ready. How do we get ready? Well, we put on the robe of Christ's righteousness. How do we do it? What's that talking about? How are we going to know that we can have that robe of Christ's righteousness? Go to Romans 13 with me. And verse 14. Romans 13 and verse 14. Notice what the apostle says here and how he says it. He says, but put what? Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. He says, put on the Lord Jesus like he put on a garment, like I put on this jacket. Put it on. Put on Christ. Put on this robe of righteousness. Let's see how he, he states it a little more clearly and... and uh, Expounds on a little bit in Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4. How do we put on the Lord Jesus Christ? What does it mean, put on the Lord Jesus Christ? Ephesians 4, verse 17. Ephesians 4, verse 17. The Bible says, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk, in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you, what? Put off concerning your... Former conduct, your old self, the old man, which grows corrupt according to deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you do what? Put on the new man. Who's the new man? We're talking about the righteousness of Christ. How do we put on the righteousness of Christ? Well, first of all, we have to put off the old garment. Self has to die. Selfish inclination has to go. Pastor Conway developed this very well this morning. I love the way he brought up the statements dealing with our will and how when we talk about, you know, give, oh, Lord, I surrender my will. We, we use these words like surrender. Uh, the Lord's going to have to take it away. We have all these passive terms for our Christian life. Like we'll put all our energy into, um, he was this morning, he was talking racing, running races, bike racing, our promotion at work. We'll put all kinds of energy into it. But when it comes to our religious life, we say, well, I don't, want to, I don't want it to be works. And we go into this passive, I just surrender it. Well, think about it for a minute. If I'm in a battle and I decide I'm going to surrender to the other side and I wave the white flag, what does that mean? When the general of that other army comes over and says, okay, you, I want you to get over here and get in line with these guys. What am I going to do if I've surrendered? I'm going to obey. I'm going to take orders from a new master. We like the passive language, but the reality is this. If you surrender your will to Christ, that means you begin to take all your orders from Christ without back-talking him, right? 
You begin choosing, not your will, but his will. Paul says that you want to put on Christ. You've got to choose to put off the old man. You've got to surrender. You've got to, you've got to first of all, self has to die, which means simply this. Jesus put it this way in uh, Luke chapter 9. Whoever comes after me, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, it says in Luke 9, and follow me. What does it mean to deny yourself? You say no to yourself. So when it's outreach day, and you're sitting in your easy chair, or you're sitting at that Sabbath meal with friends, yeah, they're gathering at the church to do outreach, but it's kind of cold outside, and, you know, I kind of like sitting here. No! No, self! I'm going to get up, and I'm going to do something contrary to what I'm inclined to do. That's what Paul's saying here. He starts out by saying, don't walk any longer as the rest of the Gentiles. You did, but don't do that anymore. Put off concerning your former conduct. Don't live the same way anymore. Put off those things concerning the the old man which grows corrupt, etc. And put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, put away lying. Let each of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one body. Be angry and do not sin, etc. And and he goes on to give more instruction here. Put on the new man. It's very practical. We begin to choose the path Christ is setting before us instead of the path we would have chosen before. And we're not doing it of ourselves. We're doing it at the command of Christ, and all of his biddings are enablings. Uh, look at another place where uh, this, is, this is a text that you probably all know very well, but maybe you haven't thought of it this way in John 17. John 17, 17, some of you could even quote it. Jesus is praying to his Father in the Gospel of John, chapter 17. He says, Father, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Now think about it for a minute. What does it mean to sanctify? Literally, it means to set apart. Jesus prays to his Father, and he says, set them apart. Apart from who? The world, right? Set them apart by your word of truth. How is the word going to set anybody apart unless we choose to follow it? See, if I read it and I say, oh, this is what God tells me to do, I shouldn't be gossiping, and so I choose to not do that anymore, what's happening? I'm being set apart by the word of truth. But if I read the word and I don't let it set me apart, if I, if I, don't cho- rather, if I, if I choose not to follow it, can it possibly set me apart? No. No, and so to put on the robe of Christ's righteousness is not some mystical thing. Neither is it... Is it simply, I'm going to pray and say, okay, Lord, uh, uh, I'm going to let go and let God. Because as Pastor Steve said this morning, we give our will to him, and then what does he do? He refines it, purifies it, and gives it back to us. And in the book Steps to Christ, it tells us that our will is the power of decision or of choice. It's given to us to exercise. God refines it, and he gives it back to us, but then he expects us to exercise our will by choosing the right path. Now, if he was going to force our will, he would have done it way back in the beginning with the devil, so he would have never sinned, or with Adam and Eve, so they never would have sinned. He doesn't want a bunch of robots in heaven that don't have a will of their own. He gives us a sanctified will and asks us to choose, and as we choose, as newborn babes, 
in reality, exercising that will, he begins to teach us how to make right choices. I know that since you began your walk with Jesus, you have had right choices that you've made and you've had wrong choices you've made. And you make those wrong choices trying to do your best, sometimes falling into a bad habit, sometimes trying to do your best. Either way, you end up afterwards and say, ooh, that wasn't a good idea. What's happening? But that the Lord Jesus is teaching you how to use your will so that ultimately he hopes that you will come to a point where you have learned to exercise your will in a positive direction every time. That's character development. That's what we're talking about. Ellen White writes, When on the earth Jesus said to his disciples, I have kept my Father's commandments. John 15, 10. By his perfect obedience, he has made it possible for every human being to obey God's commandments. Do you believe that? Or do you find yourself saying, like so many do today, well, we can never really keep God's commandments. That's why we believe in Jesus. No, we believe in Jesus because we believe by his grace and his obedience, we can become obedient. He has made it possible for every human being to obey God's commandments. When we submit ourselves to Christ, the heart is united with his heart. The will is merged in his will. The mind becomes one with his mind. The thoughts are brought into captivity to him. We live his life. This is what Paul meant when he said, I'm crucified with Christ. I don't live anymore, but what? Christ lives in me. It's a divine miracle, friends. This is the miracle of salvation, where the life of Christ becomes ours through the Holy Spirit. Jesus lives in and through us. We live his life. Listen, I'm going to read that again. When we submit ourselves to Christ, the heart is united with his heart. The will is merged in his will. The mind becomes one with his mind. The thoughts are brought into captivity to him. We live his life. This is what it means to be clothed with the garments of his righteousness. Then as the Lord looks upon us, he sees not the fig leaf garment, not the nakedness and deformity of sin, but his own robe of righteousness, which is perfect obedience to the law of God. The law of Jehovah, it says here. See, and I want us to understand what we're looking at here in this merging the will and submitting to God is simply choice. We always get mixed up with performance. We look at our lives, we look at ourselves and say, well, I don't look, it doesn't look like I'm doing that well today. Who are you to judge? What do you know? What do I know? God says, give me your will. Choose to follow me and let me deal with the details. And so it says that as we submit ourselves to Christ, he'll bring our thoughts and our hearts and our wills into harmony. And when the Lord looks at us, listen to me carefully, at any stage of our Christian life, he doesn't see the fig leaf garment. Because every step that I choose Christ, he sees Christ in me, in you. He sees fitness. And he's teaching us to exercise our will day by day. They're personal choices. How many of you ever heard the little equation, sow a word and reap a thought? Sow a thought and reap an act. Sow an act and reap a habit. Sow a habit and reap a character. Sow a character and reap a destiny. That's why Ellen White says it's not the occasional good deed or misdeed that determines where we're going to end up. It's not because you, as one of my mentors used to say, 
you got in the shower and you dropped the soap. Oh no, I'm lost. I made a mistake. It's not the occasional good deed or misdeed. Character is built by consistent and persistent actions. And the Lord teaches us in one action, one word turns to an act and one act turns to a habit if repeated. And those habits repeated become character. What kind of characters are we developing? See, this is why as Seventh-day Adventists, we have such an extensive amount to say about Christian lifestyle. And the rest of the Christian world's like, ah, oh, it just matters that you believe in Jesus. Why are you guys so worried about what you eat and drink and what you wear? Because those are all choices that are building character. And the fact of the matter is, every human being is building character today. They're building it for one destiny or another. And those choices that we make day by day are building our character. And, you know, God gives us opportunities to build our character. I want to share with you some fascinating statements, just a few, on the different aspects. First of all, our thoughts. You know, we don't have to think everything that comes into our mind. Are you aware of that? You ever have something pop in your head? I've had people say, well, it just came into my mind, so, you know, I just got this idea. Well, I decided I was going to go rent this movie. It came into my mind. I guess I, should, I ought to do it. No, no. No, listen to this. I have been shown, Testimonies 5, pages 309 and 310, I have been shown that as a family, she writes to this family, you experience much needless unhappiness. God has not designed that you should be miserable, but you have taken upon, I'm sorry, you have taken your minds from Jesus and centered them too much upon yourselves. The great sin of your family is that of needless repining over God's providences. Now, this is going to be expounded in, a, in another statement. God's prov- what are God's providences? I, I hate to break the news to some of you, but those, those, that's everything that happens to you in this life. God is in control of everything. And, and that doesn't mean he ordains it. I mean, if you have a tragedy in your life and you have a car, that doesn't mean God made you wreck the car or hit the deer or do whatever else. But he allowed it, didn't he? Because in his providence, he sees what's needed to build the character. About three years ago, my wife and I started on a daily exercise plan. And um, it's brutal. You know, I mean, when, when I was young, I, you know, when you're younger, and I'm telling you, a lot of you here, you're, you, don't, you stay in relative good shape just because you're young. And you get to a certain point in life where suddenly you're getting really out of shape and you don't know why and you've got to do something about it. And I'm going to tell you that when you begin to exercise and you haven't in a while, and this will go for anybody here, what happens? How's it feel? Oh, it's painful. It's painful. You do the leg workout in the next two days, no, the next week, you're walking around like you're 75. But here's the thing. You'll never advance. You'll never grow. You'll never get healthy without experiencing some of that. Yes or no? You think we're going to get, you think it's going to be any different when we're dealing with developing and building up character? The Lord knows what builds character, and I, and I, and I hate to be the bearer of bad news if I am here, but it's not easy stuff in life that builds character. If you've ever met somebody who was raised with a proverbial silver spoon in their mouth, never had to work for anything. And maybe some of you are there. I wish I had had to work for a little bit more when I was growing up. All it does is form bad habits that you've got to overcome later. 
You meet somebody who's never had to do anything, and, and what's the depth of character that they have? They don't have depth of character. The Lord knows what it takes. says to this family, the great sin of your family is that of needless repining over God's providences. Bad things happen, and they just complain and whine about them instead of being appreciative, right? You're saying, what do you mean, appreciative? Yeah, James chapter 1, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Isn't that what Scripture says? Why? Because we believe in a God that uses those trials for our betterment. The great sin of your family is that of needless repining over God's providences. Your unsubmissiveness in this respect is indeed alarming. What's unsubmissiveness? Simply complaining at the providences instead of submitting and saying, Okay, Lord, thy will be done. How many of, how many of us are guilty of that? Whew. You have magnified small difficulties and have talked discouragement too much. You have, made it, you have a habit of draping everything about you in mourning and have made yourselves unhappy without cause. Made yourselves unhappy because you're always talking about the negatives. Your continued murmurings are separating you from God. You should keep off from Satan's enchanted ground and not allow your minds to be swayed from allegiance to God. This is just speaking out discouragements. Through Christ... You may and should be happy and should acquire habits of self-control. Even your thoughts must be brought into subjection to the will of God and your feelings under the control of reason and religion. Now listen to this next part. Your imagination was not given you to be allowed to run riot and have its way without any effort or restraint. I'm sorry, without any effort at restraint or discipline. God didn't give you an imagination. He said, well, I'm just going to think whatever comes to mind. You need to... There needs to be a restraining of the thoughts. If you want to start thinking negative things, restrain them and say, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to sing a positive song and have my mind lifted up. If the thoughts... Now listen to what she goes on to say. I'm going to read that again. Your imagination was not given you to be allowed to run riot and have its own way without any effort at restraint or discipline. If the thoughts are wrong, the feelings will be wrong. If the thoughts are wrong, the feelings will be wrong, and the thoughts and feelings combined make up the moral character. When you decide that as Christians, now listen carefully, when you decide that as Christians you are not required to restrain your thoughts and feelings, you are brought under the influence of evil angels and invite their presence and their control. You invite, hey, Satan, come on in and bring some guys with you. When do we invite them? When we decide that we're not required to restrain our thoughts and feelings and bring them in harmony with the Word of God. Those are choices that we are to make. If you yield your impressions and allow your thoughts to run in a channel of suspicion, doubt, and repining, you will be among the most unhappy of mortals, and your lives will prove a failure. We need to restrain our thoughts. We need to understand the discipline of trials. The trials of life are God's workmen. My poor sister-in-law, staying with me this weekend, the baby just didn't want to sleep last night. I wasn't the one getting up and getting up and getting up and you had a situation like that, maybe with a child, maybe with something else in life, and you're like, why is this happening? Because God is using even those things. You know, we're, human beings are selfish. And the fact of the matter is, we don't generally choose out selfless pathways. How is the Lord going to teach us? By bringing us of necessity into situations. That will challenge us. Why? Because he's really answering our prayers 
for fitness for the coming of Christ. He's developing us in us characters. Characters fit for heaven. Thoughts and mental blessings. Page 10 says the trials of life are God's workmen to remove the impurities and the roughness from our characters. They're hewing, squaring, and chiseling. They're burnishing and polishing as a painful process. Yes? It is hard to be brought, uh, pressed down to the grinding wheel. <laughs> what vivid language. But the stone is brought forth, prepared to fill its place in the heavenly temple. Upon, listen to this next sentence, one of my favorites in the writings of Ellen White. Upon no useless material does the master bestow such careful, thorough work. If you're going through trials, that's because God sees that you're worth something. You're worth something infinite to him, and it's worth all the effort he has to put into you so that you'll have a place in his kingdom. That's powerful. Upon no useless material does the master bestow such careful, thorough work. Only his precious stones are polished after the similitude of a palace. Desire of Ages 2.24 says, God never leads his children otherwise than they would choose to be led if they could see the end from the beginning and discern the glory of the purpose which they are fulfilling as co-workers with him. In other words, Andrea, you would have chosen last night, <laughs> believe it or not. You think of your latest trial that you've had, and what this is saying is, if you could have chosen anything and you knew what God knew, you would have chosen that very thing for you. That's hard to swallow sometimes. But the reality is that we've got to see in everything in life a loving God that is fitting us for glory. One of my favorite statements, again, you hear me say that a lot, Testimonies, Volume 2, page 187, this world is not the Christian's heaven, but merely the workshop of God where we are to be fitted up to unite with sinless angels in a holy heaven. This isn't it. This isn't our resting place. When we find trials and challenges in this world, it's because this is not our final destination. Where pilgrims are passing through, we're seeking to gain an experience that will fit us for eternity. The final test is going to be determined by the characters we're developing. What choices are we making? What are we doing with the opportunities and the choices and the trials? Are we giving God the glory? Are we yielding our will to Him? Are we not murmuring and complaining, but receiving what comes from His hand? There's a fascinating statement. I have a couple more things I want to share. Education, page 108. It's talking about character and the fact and the reality that you cannot cheat character. Here's, a, here's the thing. When you've formed character, that's, that's it. You've got it. Now, now, I'm not saying, I mean, right now, we're, we're in, we have the opportunity for God to change our characters. But if we wait until the final test, there's no time. That's why the warning message is given now. In the book Education, by the laws of God in nature, effect follows effect, I'm sorry, effect follows cause with unvarying certainty. The reaping testifies to the sowing, right? I mean, if, if I go out and I plant tomatoes, what's going to grow? I don't care how much I want anything else to grow. If I planted tomatoes, I'm going to get tomatoes. And I can go around and I can tell you, hey, I'm going to have this great corn crop. I'm going to have great soybeans. I'm going to have great... And you're like, okay, very interesting. But guess what? Once the harvest comes... The jig is up, right? And you're like, wait a minute. Those aren't soybeans. Those are tomatoes, right? The harvest testifies, the reaping rather, testifies to the sowing in nature. That's the point she's making. She says here, no pretense is tolerated. You know, once the plant comes up, it's evident what was planted. Now listen. Men may deceive their fellow men 
and may receive praise and compensation for service which they have not rendered, but in nature there can be no deception. On the unfaithful husbandman, that is the one who plants, the harvest passes sentence of condemnation. If he's been unfaithful in planting, the harvest is going to show that. And in the highest sense, this is true also in the spiritual realm. In the highest sense, in the spiritual realm, guess what? When the harvest comes, it doesn't matter what my profession has been, the harvest is going to testify to what I have sown. And we will reap what we have sown. In the highest sense, this is true in the spiritual realm, it is in appearance, not in reality, that evil succeeds. The child who plays truant from school, the youth who is slothful in his studies, the clerk or apprentice who fails of serving the interest of his employer, the man in any business or profession who is untrue to his highest responsibilities may flatter himself that, so long as the wrong is concealed, he never got caught, he's gaining an advantage. Now, I hate to admit it, but my senior year in high school, I actually went to register before my dad was, he was out of town. And I don't know how this happened, but I loved it. When it came to signing his name, they had me sign his name. So the signature on file at my high school for my dad's name was mine. So every time I needed a note to excuse myself from class, I would just sign my dad's name and it matched what was on file. And I thought, and I want to tell you, I utilized that privilege far too often. And I thought I was doing myself, I thought I was getting away with something. Okay, the child who plays truant from school, et cetera, et cetera, may think as long as they don't get caught, that they've accomplished something, that they've gained something, that they, what does it say here, is gaining an advantage. But what I really did was I set myself up for character problems that really hit me head on in college. Because <laughs> college doesn't roll like high school. She says he may think, she may think, they're gaining an advantage, but not so. He is cheating himself. Listen carefully, the harvest of life is character. And it is this that determines destiny, both for this life and for the life to come. The final test and the third angel's message, the warning of the third angel is telling us, get ready, get ready, get ready. Right now, Jesus offers to you and me his robe of righteousness. How do we get that robe of righteousness? By giving him our will, and as we learned this morning, receiving that will back and then choosing with that sanctified will, choosing the path that the Lord lays before us, rejoicing in the providences that God brings into our lives, spending that time every day beginning the day with Jesus in his word, in prayer, and asking him to help us to see and rejoice in all his providences and to choose his will in his way. Not my will, but thy will be done. Not my will, but thy will be done. And the Bible says there in Revelation 14 that there is at the end of this whole controversy a group of people, here are they who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Here are they. The Bible points them out. It brings my mind back to the story of Job. When the devil comes in before God and, and before the other sons of God that are gathered together, and he says, have you considered my servant Job? 
Here's a man who's faithful to me, no matter what. Here are they, he says at the end of time. Here are they who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. I don't know if you understand the implications of that this morning. If you understand really why God would even waste the time on humanity. When you think about how, and I think in my own life, of how rebellious I've been against the will of God, and yet he pursued me about how stubborn I've been to have it my own way, and yet he pursued me. And he pursued you because of his great love that he had for you, because he saw that you could be one of those who would keep the commandments of God in the faith of Jesus. And one of the most fascinating passages that Ellen White has written is in the beginning of Desire of Ages where she describes the world just before the coming of Christ that couldn't be any worse than what we're seeing today. And she says that as the heavenly universe looked down on the earth and saw humanity in their arrogance and their pride, even the professed followers of God, always wanting to have it their way, she says as the inhabitants of, the, of, of, of heaven, of the universe, were looking down on planet earth, she says they waited I have it here, Desire of Ages 3, uh, page 37. With intense interest, the unfallen worlds had watched to see Jehovah arise and sweep away the inhabitants of the earth. These holy beings looked down at people like you and me and said, get on with it. Get on with it. Sweep them out of existence and you'll be totally just in doing it. All they're, they're stubborn and selfish. They want their own way and they've trampled you and they've trampled your law and they've shown... They blasphemed your name. Just sweep them out of the way and get on with it. And as the heavenly universe watched to see Jehovah rise up and sweep away the inhabitants of the earth, instead, he sends his only begotten son. They're thinking, God, you'll be totally just in getting rid of them. No, he doesn't get rid of them. He sends his son, Jesus, right into the midst of it. And he takes himself, takes on himself our humanity so that he can have a people who choose to keep the commandments of God in the faith of Jesus. He risks everything because he believes there will be those who respond faithfully. And Ellen White talks about him taking humanity, and she says that though he had no taint of sin on his character, yet he condescended to connect our fallen nature with his divinity, and by thus taking humanity, he honored humanity. It's like, a kid, it's like a boy's club, and you have that older boy join, and suddenly your club becomes cool, right? It's like, oh, we had a club, but now we got a club. I mean, he honored the club. He's got the big, the, 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 you know, all the, the cool kid join. Here you have this race of wretched humanity. I mean, shameful race of people. And not only does Jehovah not sweep them away, but the Son of God comes down into humanity and takes that wretched humanity. And as soon as he joins the club, saints, we're honored. We're lifted up. The Bible says we sit in heavenly places in Christ. How? Because now humanity has been deified in the person of Jesus. And he's given all of us a new lease. And he's given us a picture of, of what it's possible for humanity to become. He honored humanity. And now he's asking if humanity is willing to honor him. Is humanity willing to honor him?
Desire of Ages 671 says, The Savior came to glorify the Father by the demonstration of His love. So the Spirit was to glorify Christ by revealing His grace to the world. The very image of God is to be reproduced in humanity. The honor of God, the honor of Christ, is involved in the perfection of the character of His people. He honored humanity. Now, what do you say? Are you ready to honor Him? The Lord Jesus looks down in this world and He says, who is going to stand for me? Who are my people that are going to stand up and they're going to take their stand on the side of truth and they're going to allow me to reproduce my character in them and they're going to reflect that character to the world? Who are those that I can point to? Here are they that keep the commandments of God in the faith of Jesus. Who are those who I can have my image reflected in? Do you want to have your image reflected? You want to have God's image reflected in you? today reminds me of a story of a some businessmen they were traveling over in another country finishing up their business for the weekend and hurrying to make it back to the states on a friday afternoon they're rushing through this little airport and as they're rushing through one of the guy's briefcases knocks the leg of an apple cart where there's a 15-year-old girl selling apples and the cart, you know, the leg, the briefcase kips, clips the leg of the cart and the cart topples over and apples go everywhere. And the guys don't skip a beat. They've got to get back to the States and they just keep on moving, except for one of them, who turns around to view the carnage, the apples rolling everywhere, and he looks at this poor girl. She's got those glasses on that have the real heavy, thick lenses. She obviously has a problem with her vision, probably not even her prescription, because she's down on the floor, and she's got to be practically on top of an apple just to see it. And his heart goes out to her. And so he's standing there torn, and one of his buddies now has stopped halfway down the, you know, going to the, to, the, to the terminal. Hey, come on, what are you doing? And he says, listen, go without me, I'll find my way back. I'll somehow I'll try to catch the plane, or I'll get back. And he, and he goes over to help the girl, and he walks over, and he begins to pick up an apple. And the girl looks up at him, and he, her eyes are just filled with tears. And, of course, the lenses just magnify the tears in her eyes, and she's looking at him. And he wonders what she sees. I mean, she's just staring. And, and, and so he begins to pick up the apples, and he puts them all in a bag. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, he puts them back up on the cart. He sets the cart up. He puts, puts the apples back on the cart. And the ones that are too bruised, he puts in a bag. And she's just staring at him. And he takes a $100 currency out of his, uh, equivalent out of his, his wallet in her currency and holds it gives it to her, and he says, listen, I'm sorry uh, for the trouble. This should cover the damage. And she takes the bill, and she holds it up, and then she pulls it down and looks over top of it with the tears still in her eyes. And he's wondering what she sees. Can she, you know, is, what she's staring at is, is she, can she focus on me? Is she making me out? She's not saying anything. He says, is, is everything okay? And she gives a little nod. And he says, once again, I'm sorry, and, and I hope you'll forgive me. 
and, 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 and then he turns away and he takes a few steps and she says, stop, sir. And he turns and he looks at her and she looks right at him and she says, are you, are you Jesus? Are you Jesus? What do people see in you, friends? Do they see Jesus in you? It's a longing desire of our Lord today is that when people see you, they see Jesus. When people come in contact with his people, they see Jesus. That his image will be fully reflected in you and in me. Do they see Jesus in you? Do you want them to see Jesus in you? My charge to you this morning is simple. The Lord Jesus has called this final generation to be above the world, to follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth, to choose Jesus first and last and best in everything, to choose to give everything over to Jesus and let him shine through you, that all who come in contact with you will feel like they've been with Jesus. How many of you want to answer the call of God for this generation to be those people where God says, here are they, here are they? Is that your desire this morning? If it is, stand with me, please. And as we stand, Lord Jesus, recognize us this morning. Father in heaven, I pray. I pray as you look down on us gathered here, that your heart would be warmed by the desire in our hearts to be called by your name, to reflect your image. Father, we're not worthy of it. But we thank you for the privilege. We thank you that we can bring glory and honor to your name. We thank you that others may see Jesus in us. And Father, we ask, I ask your forgiveness for too long for too many years of my life, glorifying anything and everything but you. And I pray that you would help, help us all to redeem the time, help us all to realize and embrace the significance of this present truth message, to prepare the way for the bridegroom's coming. Father, you've seen the desire of those gathered here. We want people to see Jesus in us. We want you to finish your work in us. You've honored humanity. We pray that by your grace, we can honor you. And we pray that there will be souls in the kingdom because we have received this charge. And we ask and pray it in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.